And welcome back to another episode of Leverage Radio. Today we are in conversation with the great and powerful Robert Deagle. <laughs> Robert is a brown belt under the legendary John Danaher of the Henzo Gracie Academy. Um, he will be teaching uh, at the Evolve MMA Institute in Singapore. Robert, how are you? How's it going, man? Uh, good. Uh, very good. Really, in times of Corona, how how are yeah. you faring? <laughs> Uh, I, I, I think as good as I could be, you know, I mean, obviously these are, these are not ideal times, but I'm staying pretty productive. I'm, you know, uh, I'm training. It's pretty obvious. If you look at my Instagram, I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm not social distancing. Uh, and I am, uh, I'm doing a lot of, you know, Instagram, putting on Instagram content. Um, you know, during this time period, I, I, sat down and I had a look at like, what can I do to be productive during this time? Right. So some, some training partners, uh, and I have been rolling out some mats in, uh, you know, literally wherever we can, we're training in, like we train pretty much every day in either, you know, someone's apartment or literally we'll roll out mats on, um, one of my friend's driveways, you know, just doing what we can. And then also I'm, pushing very hard on social media to continue to grow my following. I actually just recorded an instructional a few days ago. So yeah, I'm being as active and productive as I think I can, um, given the circumstances. So um, you mentioned you just recorded an instructional. Can you tell us more about that? Sure. Yeah. So it's uh, okay. So basically the topic was on the Kani Basami movement, which is like the leg scissors to get into like the saddle or cross Ashi. Um, I decided to make it because, um, I, I got a lot of questions on that movement on my Instagram and it was the thing I got asked most about, um, no exaggeration. Like once every few days I'd get someone asking me through a DM, like, can you make a video on that? Can you make a video on that? And so, um, I was gonna just put out like a simple video, but I decided why not? just make a full instructional because it is a pretty complicated movement and there are a lot of aspects to it. So, and I had been wanting to make another instructional. So I did that. And then I also covered some cross Ashigurami offense. So, so like offense you can generate from the saddle, um, you know, both against the legs and the upper body. Cause I actually think the saddle is like a really good position to attack the upper body from like it passes or back takes. So I, I actually think it's better for those things than for leg locks. Like if you want to get on top from the bottom, getting to cross Ashi with double trouble, like both legs controlled is probably the, it's probably the single best guarantee you're going to be able to get on top, you know, um, especially if you're wrestling. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I was just going to say, especially if, you're, if your wrestling's not good, if your wrestling's not good, you know, which mine isn't really. <laughs> yeah. So um, just a little, just, I mean, not exactly sidetracking, but nomenclature, nomenclature of that position. Do you call it the saddle or cross-ashi? Because I know uh, mm. the Henzo guys hate calling it the saddle, but I've heard Eddie Cummins constantly refer to it as the saddle. Um, so <laughs> mm. when you're teaching, what do you call it, man? Well, so... <clears throat> I'll call it the saddle. I don't have a personal objection to calling it the saddle. And I, I actually think that's one of the more popular. I've heard people 
what Henzo is called the saddle. It's so like the there's like a couple names for the position. There's Cross Ashigarami. There's the Honey Hole. That's a Tenth Planet name. That's the one that <laughs> I think most guys really hate that one. I personally really dislike it. I just think it's it's just so. I don't. I don't need to say it, right? Like, let me just put it this way: I was at a tournament once, and I overheard these Tenth Planet guys talking, and one of them said. I, I, I'm, I'm paraphrasing slightly, but it was something like this. He said, like, man, he was stuck tight in my honey hole, and I don't know how he got out. <laughs> I said, like, bro, just, we don't need that in jiu-jitsu So, anyway, <laughs> like that. And then there's 411, which is a – that's like a D- – Dean Lister came up with that name, 411. I don't really like it just because, like, I don't know. I, I, I'm not – I just – I don't really like that name too much. No, No particular reason, to be honest. Um, and also, Inside Senkaku is an old name that, for a while, I insisted on calling it Inside Senkaku. I actually learned the name for the position. I learned the name Inside Senkaku ever before I trained at Henzo's. I heard that name. But now I call it Cross Ashi. And I'm going to be honest, the main reason why I call it Cross Ashi is because Cross Ashi is a lot easier to say than Inside Senkaku. And what I learned is, so like, you know, a lot of my seminars, I would teach the position, right? And I would, I would literally just get tired of saying Senkaku. So I would usually start calling it like either the saddle or cross Ashi. Like I would ask the seminar attendees, like, what do you guys call this? You guys call this the saddle? You guys call this cross Ashi? Whatever they call it, that's what I'll call it. Unless it's, I would never call it honey hole. <laughs> I'll never <laughs> call it that. Imagine that, that Senkaku is a, le- is a lot more generic though, right? I mean, yeah. yeah, for sure. Yeah, no, yeah, no doubt. It's, uh, it was just the one that I first learned. So that's why I, I I insisted on it at one point, but not anymore. So um, so this is basically uh, I saw you were filming some uh, defense stuff also for leg locks. That was my uh, I did another instructional with Combat Media. Uh, they're a company over in the UK. Uh, we shot it in Cardiff, Wales. I competed. Yeah, well, I was competing in the UK. And they asked me if I wanted to do one. And I said, yeah, I was competing in Wales. So um, I happened to be in the area. And so we recorded it. And it's been very successful. Like, it still continues to sell well, that one. So, and um, this latest one is, where do we find the latest one? Uh, I'm not sure yet. I have to. I, I have all the footage. Um, I'm in the process of editing it. It's going to take a bit of time. Um, you'll know as soon as I do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> No, but I'd imagine BJ Fanatics uh, would jump on that, right? Because these guys have been on a on a tear recently with mm-hmm. some material they've been putting out almost every You'd week. Imagine, but no, no, I, I people have reached out to them. They 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 don't seem interested. So I'm not really waiting on on them. Um, I'm doing my own thing. So yeah, I don't know where it's going to come out. I couldn't say. To be but, fair. Uh, even Ryan Hall, I guess, he made his own content and pushed it out by himself, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, he's got his own website. Um, right. I'm considering going down that route. You know, I, I have a pretty good relationship with Combat Media, the company that did my first one. But this one is different because I, I shot it. I'm going to edit it. And obviously, I'm doing the instructions. So I'm not sure. I got to talk to them, you know, considering that. This, this, the terms of this one are pretty different. Um, so we'll see. I have no idea, though. I couldn't tell you guys. 
I mean, yeah, there are a few more out there. There's uh, Dijitsu, which I think Gianni Grupo and Marcelo was exclusive mm-hmm. with a while ago. Um, yeah, but I mean, I'd be surprised if all these guys wouldn't jump on it, man. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah, it's literally the one of the most uh, intricate and now popular positions. And now niche, right? It's, I mean, it's one of those niche, niche positions that are... Mm taking over at the moment. Um, so again, mm-hmm. having said that, we have a few niche positions and techniques that have taken us by storm recently. Like, I mean, five years ago with the Barambolo, now you have your leg lock games. Uh, what, do you, what do you think is the next exploitable niche, man, in our, in, in, in our game, in our sport? Um, do you think it's going to work? Well, it's, it's tricky because I... So people were saying wrestling for a long, like after leg locks, the next thing people were talking about, they're saying, oh, wrestling is going to be the next thing. But like wrestling was always there. So I don't really know why people are like, ah, wrestling is the new thing that's going to become popular in Nogi Jiu-Jitsu. I don't really think wrestling has ever not been a feature of it. Um, So I'm, uh, I'm I'm not sure. I think that, back attacks off of so when people look for leg locks other people countering with back attacks like going after their back i think that's going to grow in popularity i think that's a that's a battle that i think is we're going to see uh, get played out for a long time like you know the guard player is looking to attack the legs and the guy on top is looking to uh attack the back with like barambolo style movements um yeah i think that battle is going to continue to develop and i think that I think you're going to see leg locks being used a lot more to do things like getting on top. So you attack the legs, which it has been used a lot in the past, but I think you're going to see that more and more as people's defensive skills uh, increase. I think you're going to see like people are going to, they're going to look for the leg locks um, and then the guy on top is going to defend. And then the guy on bottom is going to have the choice. You can stay on bottom and get nothing for your attack, or you can come on top and hypothetically score points. So um, I think those developments will, will continue. Um, the thing that makes it hard with that question is that in Nogi Jiu-Jitsu, there isn't one real standard rule set. So, like, the thing that I just said, so for instance, like, it doesn't really apply at all to, like, sub-only, which at this point barely exists, but, like, you know, like, do you get what I mean? I do. I mean, like I mentioned, I think it's it's coming full circle now. And I think, like you mentioned, wrestling. I think the ADCC rule set has a lot to, uh, lot to do with why people are now getting back into wrestling as well. Um, yeah. So yeah, I full circle again. Back attacks. You're going back to your basics, right? I mean, um, we haven't seen from the back in a while. Uh, I mean, I, I've been through Danaher's back attacks, and it just blew my mind. And. Mm. Um, and then you see the world doing it in competition. But um, again, you think the major niches, I mean, like these positions and techniques are influenced uh, majorly by ADCC or are there any other Nogi uh, tournaments that you think make an impact as to what will be the next niche? Uh, you think it's ADCC that does it? It's, well, for better or worse, it's mainly ADCC. So like ADCC is for all intents and purposes, the world championship of no-gi. Um, what's tricky about no-gi is the fact that there isn't really one standardized rule set for all the athletes to, you know, compete in. So, for instance, in the gi, everybody knows IBJJF world champions 
are the best. Now, let's say that you beat me in in EBI in an EBI rules match. That does not at all mean that you would necessarily beat me in ADCC rules. It doesn't. It doesn't really. I mean, you could, right? But it doesn't really necessarily imply that. So, like, it's a lot trickier. So, as an athlete, if you're trying to demonstrate that you're the best in the world at no gi grappling, sorry, hold on one second. If you're trying to demonstrate that you're the best in the world at no gi grappling, then like, it's it's much more like vague and ambiguous than in the gi right so if i want to demonstrate that i'm the best in the world in the gi everybody knows what tournament to win now you could say all right just win every single every single rule set style in no gi okay fair enough fair enough i mean however there isn't um i i i think if we were to continue with that reasoning i'll just just win every rule set just like in um, in the past when competitors would do gi and no gi at the highest level, and you don't really see that. You see it still some to some extent, but not as much anymore. Um, if we were to say in no gi, okay, just, just, you know, everybody just do all the tournaments. Oh, the best guy will just win all of them, right? I think you're going to see more separation in who's winning, just like we used to see in like, you know, ADCC and, and the Mundials, right? You used to see almost always the top guys winning both. Right. Now, you see, it's becoming rarer and rarer, right? It, 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 it's much less frequent. And I think that you would see the same thing in Nogi if that trend continued, um, which I kind of think it will continue. So, yeah, I mean, I, I. but the other thing with Nogi is that I think as a community, even though uh, there are so many rule sets, we've all sort of agreed that ADCC is the pinnacle, so that is, I think, mainly the driving rule set, right? People want to win ADCC. Um, so, like, as a result, I think that the strategies that bring about consistent success in ADCC are going to be the strategies that become most popular. And I personally think the best strategy, I mean, this is kind of, I'm, I'm going to say something which is a little broad but i think the best overall strategy to win adcc is to get on top mm-hmm. that could be a takedown or it could be a sweep but getting on top in adcc you don't even necessarily have to pass the guard yeah um because oftentimes you see guys winning by you know getting on top and then not passing the guard but just getting good at getting on top is like pretty much the most important thing at winning adcc and um Many other things matter, and you can win doing many other things. But that's pro- I, I, it's, it would be very hard to win ADCC without being very good at that skill set, getting on top and staying on top. Right. So, uh, so I've done some research on you, man, um, and I, I, I understand, like Danaher, you were on your way to becoming a professor of philosophy. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I was pretty far off from it, but I was <laughs> I was getting there, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> you think that impacted your paths uh, in jiu-jitsu at all? Um, well, you know, <clears throat> I I think that um, I think that just like with philosophy, 
I, I got into philosophy more so than anything else because I was very, very curious and I wanted to know certain things. Like I wanted the answers to certain questions. And similarly, I think my interest in jujitsu is, you know, it's, it's, it's basically the same where I got into jujitsu because I was very curious and I wanted to know basically what worked, you know, like I looked at jujitsu and it was very interesting to me. And I, it's a little different because jujitsu is a competitive game, whereas philosophy is not a competitive game, although some people like to make it out to be. <laughs> uh, but like, so there are differences, but I think this, the, the, the fundamental similarity between those two that for me that like pushed me to want to go into them was curiosity, you know, like, yeah. And so like, I don't think philosophy directly, uh, I don't think it greatly directly benefited my jujitsu, right? Like, I don't think. Let me put it this way. Sorry to cut you off. Uh, like, were there any particular philosophers or schools of thought that would influence how you think about training or competing or teaching BJJ? Um, <clears throat> I mean, I guess in a very broad sense. So, like, I mean, obviously my worldview is shaped by, like, you know, reading and thinking about philosophical problems. And, you know, to that end, you know, the, the philosophers who I like the most, you know, are – I like Ludwig Wittgenstein. He was an Austrian philosopher. I like the American pragmatists like William James and, and Richard Rorty. Um, and I like um, certain Chinese philosophers like Zhuangzhou. So like, yeah, I guess, I mean, those are, those are philosophers I like the most. And what a lot, what they, all of them share is that they are more concerned with um, like the, the everyday, like the practical day in and day out aspects of being rather than sort of some of the loftier, so to speak, like metaphysical questions of being. Um, so in that sense, like in that it's shaped who I am as a person, I guess you can say that it impacted my jujitsu, but I wouldn't say like directly though, you know, like I'm more as a jujitsu athlete and coach, I'm more directly impacted by like, uh, reading about topics like deliberate practice and and uh, even to some extent like game theory, I think those yeah like uh, like you know John Nash, uh, yeah yeah that stuff um, like yeah that's more directly impacted my thoughts on jujitsu. Really like yeah if you don't mind me asking specifically. How game theory, how Nash equilibrium, uh, how, how, do, how do you apply it to your jiu-jitsu? So, okay. Uh, it's very, okay. So it's like, I'm always interested in best practices. Okay. Looking for options which yield the best results, the most, uh, with the highest rate of consistency. Okay. Um, so, you know, looking for options that don't have, like, like if I, if I, if I ever spend time practicing something, I don't want it to be something that is going to yield like suboptimal results, like a good percentage of the time. You know what I mean? Like, I'll give an example. I could spend hypothetically a lot of time practicing my Americanas. Like, and will, will I get white belts with that? Yeah, of course I'll get white belts with that. I'll get blue belts with that who aren't very good, but I'm not going to get very good people with that. So like, okay. So for instance, uh, imagine if in training, 
whenever I catch a, a submission in training, in my opinion, if that submission wasn't something which I could realistically apply to a very high level opponent and, and finish them, right? And when I say finish, I mean break or, or render them unconscious, then it's kind of a waste of a rep in training, right? Like you, you, you can train with people of lower skill levels and tap them with a lot of things which aren't really very good. And they'll tap because maybe they don't know, maybe they have a pre-existing injury, maybe they're just scared, right? And that's fair, right? If I was an inexperienced grappler and somebody grabbed onto my leg or arm and I didn't really know what was happening, I'd say, yeah, you probably just tap, right? Like, um, but like um, as a guy who's trying to win higher level matches, I think that's a terrible way to be training. So, yeah, that's something that really informs yeah. my training. As a competitor, that I mean, I would imagine that directly uh, crosses over into your day-to-day training. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, no, uh, so leading into my next question, uh, what does a typical training day look like for you, man? Uh, again, without this COVID situation, uh, what is the day of training? Sure. <laughs> Okay, so with in a regular non-COVID week, um, all right. So basically, what I what I would do when Henzo's was still open was I would get to Henzo's about pretty much every morning at seven thirty a.m. for for John Danaher's first class of the day. Um, that would be Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Tuesday, Thursday mornings, I obviously would therefore not go in the mornings because he's not he's not teaching. Uh, so, but Monday, Wednesday, Fridays, I would go to that first class. I would drill and then train. Um, I really like his class structure because it's very predictable. Like you pretty much know exactly what you're getting in every, you don't know what techniques he's going to show, but you know the format, which is going to be, we're going to do half, half of the class is going to be on technique. Um, and the drill, uh, sorry, the rolling portion of the class is going to consist of six rounds, three of which are positional. He actually added a fourth positional one near the end of, uh, before COVID happened, but, three or four positional rounds and you always know what positional rounds they're going to be. Not always, but it's, it's very, very consistent. Uh, every once in a while he'll throw in like a, a random one, uh, but it's very, very consistent. And then um, you have your free rounds at the end where you can just freely grapple. And then usually what I'll do after the first class is I'll, I'll get some extra free rounds in with some people, or maybe I'll do some positional rounds. Like for instance, I'll work a lot of like, I'll put myself in bad spots. I'll grab somebody and say, Hey, can you put me in, you know, an outside Ashi? Hey, can you put me in a reverse Ashi? You know, try to, try to leg lock me and I will want to try to work my way out. And that's, you know, specific deliberate practice that I'm, I'm doing for myself. Um, then I usually I'll drill for probably like an hour, hour 15 with one of my training partners. Um, then we'll get lunch. Then we'll come back. We'll do John Danaher's second class of the day, which is a little bit longer. The, the afternoon one is every weekday. That's the one where he uh, he, he teaches like a half gi, half no gi class. Um, like very impressive from an instructional standpoint. Like you're watching him teach a gi class and then a no gi class. And the techniques are usually completely different. Um, so from the perspective of someone else who, you know, I, I also teach, obviously, um, it's, it's a pretty impressive thing to do. Um, and, um, and then we, we roll in the same way as we do in the morning class. 
And then same as the morning class, I usually try to get extra rolls. And then by this point, I'm getting pretty tired. Um, I drink a lot of uh, caffeinated energy drinks, so <laughs> I, I rely on those. Uh, and then usually what I do is I, I take the train home. Uh, I'll study tape on the train home. And I was teaching at night, so I would go to one of the schools I was teaching at. I would teach, and then also I would roll with my students, which which is they're lighter roles because we're you know we're talking lower level uh, skilled guys. Uh, but I still get training with them, and you know I'd I'd get rounds in and work specific things with them. So usually like two to three training sessions a day, and a lot of time spent studying tape um, would be like a given day. So without studying tape, that's about four to five hours of training, you'd say? Um, probably more like five to six, um, because you got the morning, so one, two, four. Yeah, yeah, yeah I mean, probably like, yeah, actually it could be like four and a half to six, because like, I'm also drilling, yeah. Um, yeah. like in between and stuff. Um, I don't know, I never really timed myself <laughs> i'm just on the mat like curious for, yeah, yeah yeah i'm on the mat pretty much all day because like um you know i'm jumping from henzo's to a place where i'm teaching and you know it's really the thing i want to be doing the most you know uh what does your weekend look like you're training on the weekends um no i was taking the weekends mostly off because you need some time to rest and like um, I would also use the weekends as opportunities to spend a lot of time to study. So today, for instance, I'm taking today totally off. Um, I've been training really hard. And I like yesterday at, at the last roll, I felt like I was going to go unconscious. <laughs> I was like, I was like, okay, I need to need to take like a day off. And I'm just going to, today I'm just going to watch tape. So any day that I'm not like training in person, um, I I try to take days off where I don't do any thinking about jujitsu at all, but I'm going to be honest. It's a pretty difficult thing for me to do. <laughs> I don't usually succeed when I try that. So like, like I, one day I remember this, I was like, I was like, I'm not going to watch any tape today. I'm going to just, just do other things. And I put on like Jurassic park and I got like halfway through and I was like, Oh, wait a minute. Hold on a second. And I started thinking about something <laughs> and I wanted to like, I don't even remember what it was, but I, I wanted to go look something up. Before I knew it, I was watching. I was watching tape, and that that <laughs> took over the day. <laughs> yeah. So what are you doing? So how uh, strength and conditioning, man? Uh, Literally, my next question as well. Okay. Um, I wish that I could tell you that I was super disciplined and diligent with that. <laughs> I'm really not. Uh, yeah, because like, so the thing is, is like. I'm actually a very lazy person, okay? Like, the thing is, I just really love jujitsu. That <laughs> it pushes me through the laziness. Like, um, I, I'm like, I will go through like ridiculous things to get good training in. I will drive like hours to get good training in. You know, I'll do like absurd things. Like, I have done a lot of things which I think people would be like, this is ridiculous. Why would you go through all this to get good training in? Because I just, I just love it so much. But when it comes time to lift weights, even though I know it's important and I should be doing it, I'm just so lazy. Like I just, it's not interesting to me in the same way. And I, that's a terrible excuse because what you could say is, you know, what you could say to what I just said is, well, it doesn't matter if it's not interesting. Does it help you? Yes. I can't argue against that. It would definitely help my jujitsu. So I, I do need to be doing more of it. I'm planning on lifting weights today. In fact, actually, 
Uh, <laughs> you will. We, we, it's you so fucking certainly boring. will. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's so fucking boring. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, anything else, uh, Robert, that you do for supplementing your training, possibly running, swimming, yoga, any any of that stuff? I like swimming. Um, I used to run a lot when I was in uh, uh, college, but I stopped running because I think that it's not the best thing for your joints. Um, I would run like for like a half hour to an hour in the mornings and pretty, pretty religiously. My grandpa, uh, my grandpa was a professional boxer and he like sort of like, he like really pushed me on running. He was like, you got to run every morning. And, and I did uh, for a long time. But like I said, I, I feel like it was wearing on my joints. So I stopped doing it. Uh, but swimming, I like a lot. I think swimming is very good on your joints. I don't really feel like there's any risk to your joints. And it's, I think, amazing cardio. Um, it's not always the warmest in New York, and I don't have access to a pool, so I can't really do it as consistently as I'd like. But I do really like swimming. And and I don't do yoga, but I do stretch quite a lot. Like, I stretch usually twice a day, uh, once in the morning, once at night. Um, very easy. I, I, I'm pretty flexible and I just, I just stretch while I'm watching like videos or something while I'm you know, watching matches and um, just to keep myself like, like, Loose like limbo. flexible. Yeah, yeah, exactly. No, but um, I think that's again, underlooked a lot recovery. So um, you mentioned again, you stretch. Is there anything else that you've been, um, you've been with CBD sponsorships? CBD sponsorships. (laughs) No, I I I got a I I won a super fight once where after I won they gave me see like a a free sample of like CBD oil. It was like a a thirty day supply or something. It was pretty good. I actually thought it helped. Yeah, it was. It was like you could apply it topically, and I definitely think that it made an impact on. uh, I had at the time like my IT band was acting up. And I, I was applying it and it definitely seemed to help. Um, but I don't take any supplements regularly other than if you count caffeine. Um, and I, I mean, I have a decent amount. Like I have like a whole, I've got like stuff right over there. Um, but like a lot of it, I don't really think it, it doesn't feel like it does anything. Like, <laughs> I, like I bought this stuff, like I have MSM powder for my joints and um, I, I like I'll use it, but it's like I'm, I don't know. It's hard to track whether it's actually doing anything, and uh, so I generally don't spend that much on supplements because it feels like it's a. I I read somewhere that the only supplements that definitively do things are caffeine, creatine, and protein. So, um, yeah, I mean, but I I don't even take anything other than caffeine regularly, and I pretty much only take caffeine regularly because at this point I'm addicted, and <laughs> I will no be too not. tired of. Yeah. So, um, tell me, man, uh, have you had any serious injuries? Um, yeah, I'd rather not talk about those, though. Yeah, I don't want to. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Give something, something away. Because more yeah, yeah, I don't want some, some serious injuries. What's that? What's that? We've had some serious knee injuries ourselves, and when you mentioned running, that was just just, just had flashbacks. Oh yeah, yeah. No, I, believe me, I get it. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, how was uh, your experience in Bangalore? How did uh, you link up with Rohit? Just to give so, a background, um, so Robert was he was traveling uh, India and he he came to Bangalore. He did a seminar with 
the Institute of Jiu Jitsu. And go ahead, man. How'd you meet them? Okay, so, um, okay, it was basically two different steps in the whole process. The first one was that I was um, contacted actually by another gym in Bangalore. Uh, who asked me if I was interested in teaching a seminar. And I had never taught a seminar in Asia at that point, but I said, yeah, sure, I'll do that. We planned uh, we planned a seminar pretty far out. It was a pretty, pretty long stretch of time. And then what wound up happening was I got contacted uh, by a couple other Indian schools, and we set up some seminars. Uh, months went by, and then I, it was – I other things happened with, uh, I went to Singapore and then I, that, uh, really motivated me to want to come back to Asia because I enjoyed it so much. And then all this time, these Indian seminars, which were scheduled to happen in January were, you know, still set to happen. Right. And then, uh, I started talking to the schools and <laughs> the schools, like either they're like, fuck, we don't have the money right now. Or they, weren't interested anymore. And I was like, what the fuck happened? <laughs> but then Rohit school, Rohit still was the Institute of Jiu Jitsu still was, which I was happy about because I, I wanted to, I was looking forward to coming to India. I set up seminars in a bunch of different Asian countries and India was the second, the second destination on my trip. It, the first one was Taiwan. So after landing in, in Bangalore, um, you know, I met with Rohit and uh, I had an amazing time. It's, easily my top three countries I've ever visited. So like it would, I, I actually just wrote an Instagram post fairly recently about one of the things I really liked about Bangalore was that so often when I travel, like I love to see places that are unique, you know, like I think everywhere I've traveled, I've enjoyed, there's nowhere I've traveled where I can say definitively like that was awful. Like I've liked everywhere I've gone. However, some places like, so for instance, like, I was in Taiwan and this might sound like it doesn't matter, but like I was actually a little bit disappointed when in the movie theaters, they just had like American movies. Right. I was like, I don't know. It's like, I, I when I'm there. I want to see their culture. Right. Um, but like uh, I get it. American films are popular and such, but I, I liked how in Bangalore they were like, it was just like Indian movies. Right. Like I really liked that. And I, I liked how the culture was so unique and distinctive. Like it was, very different than anything I'd ever experienced. Even to this, even after all the other countries I've visited subsequently, it was very unique. Like nothing compared. <laughs> like, uh, like for instance, um, like I would. Smells. <laughs> smells. Yeah, I guess like, like, all right, I'll just, all right, like so it's like not the cleanest city, right? Obviously not. And like, I actually genuinely, uh, generally prefer cleaner places. Like I like. I'm very organized. I like efficiency, but like Bangalore was just so unambiguously like, like, like fun almost like it was, it was just crazy. Right. Like, like the traffic was not like, okay. So in New York, we have pretty bad traffic. It's not like that though. You guys have <laughs> no, it's not. Another world. Right. And like, it's, it sounds so, it sounds so like dumb, like, like, I think I would actually like living there for, I, w I don't know if I'd want to live there forever, but I, I would probably enjoy living there for like six months because like, first of all, the training was really good. I'll, I'll talk about that more at length. Like I was very impressed by Rohit and his students and, um, but just like the city itself, like I unfortunately didn't get to see as much as I wanted. Um, 
I, I, I walked around, but I was by myself and it was at, at that point they were all, they were, they were tired. We'd been training all day and just hanging out. And then like at night I was like, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm going to wander the city a little bit. And I did, but um, I didn't get to see too much because obviously I had no idea where I was going and I didn't want to wander too far from my hotel. Cause I was like, I don't know if I'm going to have to find my way back. Like it, it took me like 10 minutes to cross the street at one point. So like, <laughs> yeah. I'm trapped somewhere. Um, but I yeah. felt totally, sorry, what's that? Go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, I, I felt totally safe. It was not like at any point I felt like, oh, I'm going to get like mugged or something. It was just simply that, like, I was like, I don't know if I'm going to get lost because I don't really know where I am. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was like, so basically the, the, the main point I'm trying to get at is like, okay, so I love Singapore, right? I like Singapore a lot, but I'll say this. Singapore reminds me actually to some extent of New York and they're obviously very different. Right. But there are, it's, it it didn't feel like a complete culture shock to me. Bangalore felt like a complete culture shock to me. And I actually liked that. So, so yeah, Yeah, that was the biggest. We live up North and uh, when we go to Bangalore, we also have a culture shock, man. Um, Oh yeah. Also, I wouldn't be so quick to like India because you have you've seen like very little of it. You got to come check out the rest of us. No, yeah, no <laughs> doubt. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I'm just speaking, I guess, of Bangalore. Then I like Bangalore. Fair enough. Bangalore is amazing, man. But the traffic is insane. It takes you yeah. like it takes me half an hour to get from a place from one place to ten minutes place. away. Like three minutes. Yeah. Away. Otherwise, you gotta walk it. Right. Mm-hmm. Ridiculous. Um, but yeah, uh, you mentioned the IJJ guys. Um, and I saw that you had commented that he, so a little background. So I, I won the absolute division this time in India, uh, in the ADCC oh. division, and Rohit won the mm-hmm. 66? 66 kilos. Yeah. No division. You mentioned he'd, he'd, um, he'd be a good pick for the trials, right? Yeah, for sure. Um, so, I, I also think he has a good style for the trials where I was talking before about like one of the most important things is, is getting on top and staying on top. Um, he has a very good base. Like he's hard to sweep. He's good at staying on top um, and he's good at scrambling to get on top. So that's the, those things combined to make a good style for the ADCC rule set. Um, yeah. But so I get asked a lot by people that are like, um, they ask me like, what Asian kind were the toughest and India seriously, or I'll, I'll just say Rohit students were among the best. And I'm not kidding. Like I was very impressed by them. Like, and it was very motivating in a sense too, because it demonstrates that you don't need access to like higher level coaches and training partners to get to a very high level. Now, is it helpful? Of course it is. That's if it wasn't helpful, I wouldn't be going to Henzo's. Henzo's is about an hour away from where I live. So I wouldn't be going to Henzo's if it wasn't helpful. But the fact that Rohit and his students were able to get as good as they have without access to higher level, you know, direct higher level in-person coaching uh, is a testament to the fact that you can get very good just through the use of, like instructionals and match study and consistent, deliberate practice. Those guys are day in and day out focused on improving in a deliberate fashion, which is, 
you know, they're not just showing up to train. When I was there, they had a ton of specific questions for me, like highly specific questions. And, you know, I really enjoyed helping them work through stuff. Like there was never a shortage of questions from them, um, which is, I think, what you want to see from from people who are trying to get better, you know, like specific questions. If, if someone doesn't have specific questions, that means they haven't really been thinking about the topic that much, you know, um, and it's going to it's going to take them longer to therefore improve um but yeah they had a ton of highly specific questions and like i thought the training was very very good how did that roll uh roll did you i mean i'm sure you rolled with him uh how did that go man of course yeah it was good we had good roles yeah yeah i i he was my favorite person to roll with out of his whole crew yeah they have some decent guys there man they have i think that they wish they have to use any 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 of the standouts for you um, they're all good, actually. I guess. I mean, yeah. I haven't trained with them, but I've I've watched them train. I've had a couple of matches against some of the guys, and um, very impressive crew, honestly. Yeah, for sure. Um, I I also think uh, a magic man is his nickname on on Instagram. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he was very good too. He was one of the other ones that stood out to me. Um, yeah. but a lot a lot of them did though. Um, uh, dude, that leads directly into my again. It leads into another question. Um. Uh, so you're moving to Evolve. Um, you're the you're the new head BJJ instructor there, correct? Uh, so I am running the Nogi. It's like a separate program. It's like a Nogi program. Um, there is a pre-existing jujitsu program there, okay. um, and I'm not taking over that. I mean, there's already a lot of very good instructors there. I, my intention is not to come in and be like, "All right, guys, now I'm the the head coach." Or whatever. <laughs> that, that means, no, I I want I want to be part of the team, right? Like if I'm coming in, I want to work har- harmoniously with the other instructors. That's my goal. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you're heading so, program, correct? Yeah. I, yeah. So yeah, it's like a separate Nogi program. Yeah. That's what I'm going to be the head of. So um, this is only jujitsu, but, or, or does it also include some of the MMA guys? Um, so I intend to coach anyone who's interested in learning from me including jiu-jitsu and MMA guys. I have a friend, for instance, who's an MMA fighter who is um, considering training at Evolve now because I'm going to be coaching there. And uh, I, yeah, I mean, I, I'm interested in coaching grapplers in submission grappling and also MMA. Um, my long-term goal is to coach people, you know, in both of those sports, because I think that they're different and interesting outlets for, you know, for grappling. Um, yeah. I, I've cornered MMA fights before. I'm obviously not a striker, so I can't comment on on any of that. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't try to. Um, I just, you know, the MMA grappling, I think I can also like uh, coach pretty well. I, I, ha- I have to work on it more because my focus has obviously been like pure submission grappling. But in time, I'm confident, you know, I'll be able to grow my knowledge to the point that I can successfully coach MMA grappling. Um. So just again, the follow up to that. So what what do you do about training partners now that you're shifting from, I would say the best Nogi uh, group in the world to, I mean, something that's not quite at that level as yet. I mean, I know that your, your right. goal right now is to teach and start coaching and build that program up from, from, from a start, but for your mm-hmm. own training as a competitor, how do you deal with that? Again, uh, similar to Rohit or what would you do? Yeah. So, so, I mean, so Rohit's situation is actually, like I said, very motivating to me because he 
started from absolutely nothing. I, I'm not starting from absolutely nothing. I'm coming into a school that already has a pre-existing jujitsu program, right? With pretty high level black belts. So I, my goal is to, is to develop students who are in their own right, very good and can therefore act as good training partners for me. I have a lot of friends in Singapore that train jujitsu and, and many of them have voiced um, interest in, in coming over to train under me at Evolve. And, you know, those guys that are coming are oftentimes very good. And I want to help them get even better so that they're good training partners for me. So um, a lot of people have asked me this question. <laughs> they're like, ah, are you worried? Is your training going to suck now? No, I'm not worried about that at all. I'm not worried about my training. I think my training will be just as good, if not better. Because, um, so you have to understand, you know, at Henzo's, I am... I was up until fairly recently still doing other things like, like working and going to school. So I was training a lot, but I had other things I had to do as well. Like I just told you guys my training schedule, but you know, imagine that same routine, but also mixed in with, you know, I was taking like two college classes a semester for a master's program and, you know, and you know, also working like, so there's, it's going to be almost easier for me because I'm only going to be doing jujitsu all day, you know, pretty much every day. Um, so yes, well, I'm not going to have access to, to professor, you know, John Danaher in person to ask questions. I'm not going to have access to like, I have a lot of really good training partners and Henzo's. I think that by developing students of my own who are very good, I can in turn also develop, you know, good training partners. Like I'm, I'm going to be very like strategic about this. Like, um, so uh, if I have a, a training partner who has an interest in learning outside Ashi, like I want to take someone and turn them into a, like a really good outside Ashi Ashi practitioner. So I have someone to work my defense against. <laughs> you know, like I don't play ankle locks too much. However, I think every academy should have at least one ankle lock expert because you got to learn how to defend it. Right. So I want to, I'll take someone, whoever's interested in learning. All right. You're, you want to learn angle locks. I'll take someone. I'll make them really good at angle locks. Cause I think you need, you need that, you know, like if you don't have that. So like I've had, I've had experiences training with guys that are very good at ankle locks and it, they, they fucked me up because I was so used to, all I was thinking about was heel hooks. Right. Because that's, those are the highest percentage leg locks. So that's what we focus on at Henzo's. And then I'll, I'll tell you guys specifically who it was. He's a, he's a training partner of mine. Ryan McCartney, he's from Ireland. And he, when he first came to Henzo's, he was just fucking me up with ankle locks. I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> like, like, he wasn't catching me with heel hooks, but it was like, ankle locks or cross ankle locks? What were they, both? No, it was mostly like straight ankle locks. Because I, I I wasn't respecting them. Like I would let him put me in the positions because like I I was really good at defending heel hooks and I was like ah you know I'll just defend it I'm gonna counter him and like that that would work occasionally but then also he would just fuck me up with ankle locks and I was like damn okay I need to that 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 those roles specifically just were an example of roles that pushed me to realize I needed to do develop defensive skill in a certain area and so when I'm at evolve. That's one thing which I'm going to specifically, you know, push at least at least one person to be good at. So I have that right. Um, similarly, right, like you, I think every academy should have somebody who's really good at taking the back off of leg attacks, right? Like so, I attack I attack them with leg locks, and they counter me with like barambola style movements to the back. Because if you don't have that, 
if you don't have somebody who's really good at ankle locks, if you don't have somebody who's really good at those Barambolo style attacks to the back off of leg locks, then you run into situations where you can get away with stuff, which you won't get away with in competition. Right. And you'll develop habits and tendencies, which will get you punished in competition. And I, you got to be very careful with that, right? Like there's nothing more dangerous than thinking you're good at a movement when you're actually not right. Like you think, Oh, <laughs> you think that, Oh, this move is really good. I'm going to fuck everyone up with it. But the only reason that's happening is because no one at your Academy knows the counters. And then, so you go to a competition, someone knows the counters, they just fuck you up with it. It's like, Oh shit. Like no good. So like, so, so yeah. And I think as, as long as you're strategic, as long as you know, I I'm strategic about teaching these things to students, I think that I'll, I'll, I'll be fine. I'm going to be able to sort of uh, control my own training pretty successfully. At least I hope. <laughs> so, Ron, what, is, uh, what is a 7.30 class at Henzo's like? I mean, the room's packed, I'm guessing, right? Yeah, yeah. It's early in the morning, but it's, it's a lot of guys that are there before work starts. That's kind of why the class is, the class is so early because it's designed to, to accommodate uh, people who work in Manhattan but also want to train. So you'll get guys, it's actually kind of hilarious. You'll get guys that are like lawyers and accountants and like, uh, like wall street guys, but they're fucking killers. Like they're really good. Even though they have full-time jobs. Like we've had people from Henzo's that work regular full-time jobs that won the trials. I don't think that'll happen anymore because now the trials are more competitive than they've ever been. But in the past, like, yeah, it's fucking crazy, you know? And they, just from John Danaher's classes. And uh, how long have you been, uh, do you train or and compete in the gi as well, or is it just no gi for you? I used to train and compete in the gi. Um, I still own, I thought I owned one. I just found a second one. So I own two gis. <laughs> <laughs> I was cleaning out my car, um, the truck of my car last night. I found a second gi. I was like, oh, I have two of these. Uh, but what like, when did you stop training in the gi completely and decide, did you compete in the gi? I mean, you said you competed in the gi. When did you drop that completely though? Um, well, so it was a couple of years ago. I, I mean, I'll still throw on a gi very sporadically to train. It's, uh-huh. I, I, I haven't worn a gi, I think now in like six months, but um, I, I'll still throw one on sporadically. When I moved to Singapore, I, I'll probably train in the gi maybe like once a week or something. Um, cause I still want to learn it so I can teach it to people who are interested in it someday. I think a good jujitsu instructor should be capable of teaching no gi grappling, MMA grappling and gi grappling. I think it's, a, I, I obviously have a focus on no gi grappling as a competitor, but as a coach, I want to be able to teach all three. Um, the, honestly, like there were two main things that pushed me away from gi competition. The first one was that, so you asked about injuries. Um, I'll, I'll say about this, my my hands, I injured them in, in training in the gi, like a lot. And there was a point where I, I literally had to sit out for months because of my hands. So I didn't want to do that anymore because it was it was getting really bad. Like it's, this hand like was just getting fucked and it was just not not worth it, I thought. Um, like I, I couldn't even hold a pencil at one point. Um just from, from really like hard, you know, um, you know, grasps of the, you know, like the collar and such. Right. And um, the second one was that 
like, I, I just don't like the rule set as much. Like I, I like leg locks, you know? And like, it was really frustrating. Like um, I first got into leg locks because of Imanari, like Masakazu Imanari. I, I, the first reason I ever got into leg locks actually was I loved triangles. I would use a lot of triangles from guard. And the problem I would run into was people would stand up. Yeah, exactly. They would stand up. And so I'd be like, all right, what do I do now? And I was watching a lot of Imanari and I was like, oh, I can, I can go over leg locks. And I got into that. And then as the, the more I got into leg locks, I was like, man, I, like, I kind of want to compete with these things. Like, I, I really like heel hooks. I think they're strong weapons and I want to work on them. And that was actually a big reason why I went to Henzo's was I wanted to learn. I wanted to learn heel hooks. I was like, who around here can teach me heel hooks, you know? And and so that's why I went to Henzo's. Um, So another thing that I've noticed about um, the main competitors at Henzo's uh, that compete no gi is that they've completely dropped the gi. And so do you think that as somebody who's doing this full-time and they're professionals um, and they're competing no gi full-time, do you think that they should be training no gi 24-7? Or do you think it's okay to uh, train in the gi occasionally? Um, So for someone like who's prepping for the ADCC trials right now, let's say I am, um, they're in December. We are what six months out. What would you recommend I do at this point of time? Would you recommend I drop the gi completely or focus my time completely no gi at the moment? Yeah, I mean, if you're in a camp, I would say do in the camp what is as specific as possible to the competition that you're entering. So you want to simulate the conditions of the competition as much as is possible, even down to things like room temperature, right? So, like for instance. I think that there's a big difference in training in a hot environment and like a cold environment and at like a medium temperature environment. So if you know, so for instance, you're going to, you're doing the Singaporean trials. Oh yeah. I think, I think that's going to be set in the Kalang wave mall. They said, right. I think um, the Kalang, the Kalang, I, th- I think that's where it is. I, I, uh, the mall. Yeah, you're correct. I think so. Yeah, yeah, I think it's so it's probably the Kaling Wave Mall, yeah. And so like the Kaling Wave Mall is like um well Singapore's pretty hot in general, right? And the Kaling Wave Mall, I've been in it a pretty decent amount of times at this point. Like uh it's not cold, so I would <laughs> I would expect like a moderate temperature. Whereas like I know like the North American East Coast trials in November, that venue is fucking cold. So like if you if you train like in a hot environment, like seriously, it is, there, these are different conditions you're going to be entering. So like, you know, you, the sweat, um, the lubrication of your joints, uh, movement, etc. This is all going to be modified by temperature. And similarly, like obviously gi and no gi is as it's an even more dramatic change. So yeah, it, especially as you're approaching competition, I would try to simulate the conditions of the competition you're entering as much as is possible. But if you're asking me, like, is there any sense to training gi at all? If you're only, if your only goal is no gi competition, I think that there is sense in training gi. Let, let's say you had a student who from day one, for whatever reason, he's just like, I'm only interested in no gi competition. I want to win ADCC. I wouldn't necessarily force him to train in the gi, but I actually do think there is some sense in training in the gi Specifically, I think passing guard is easier in the gi because of grips and therefore can be taught more easily in the beginning. Like if you have a student who, um, 
you know, struggles with guard passing, I think put them in a gi, let them train guard passing in a gi, and in time they're going to gain confidence and skill, which maybe you'll have to make modifications fine, but that confidence and overall skill at guard passing, which they were able to more easily attain while wearing a gi, I don't think it's that difficult to convert to no gi. Now, that being said, um, I think that there comes a point, though, where if your only goal is no gi competition, I think training in the gi ultimately becomes useless. Like, for me right now, I don't think there's any point to me training in the gi as a competitor. Like I said, I, I am interested in training in the gi from the perspective of a coach who I want to understand, like, the intricacies and nuances so I can coach more effectively to people who want to compete in the gi. Right. Yeah, but I'm at a point where I don't think training in the gi will yield me any 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 specific benefits for my personal competitive goals. Yeah, man. I mean, the only reason I'm still hanging on to it is uh, again for students. Um, yeah, that's a, that's a whole other market that uh, I have to adapt to at times. Um, especially mm-hmm. in a country like ours, I'm just trying to get people in the gi, man. We don't have. Um, I mean, at least the city city we're in, um, not many people put the gi on. Um, it's mainly no gi, mm-hmm. and guys who are down to train uh, without the kimono. So it's hard getting people into the gi. Actually, that's a struggle that we've been facing here, um, which is mm-hmm. quite the opposite of COVID struggles with. He's got guys in the gi all the time uh, down in Bangalore. Yeah. Um, but well, that's yeah. kind of awesome. Did you- well, you're just doing no gi all the time. That's that sounds that sounds great to me. I just keep doing that, dude. Yeah, I mean, so we we were originally in MMA gym, um, and so yeah, we've just been doing no gi for the longest time, and I've just been studying instructionals and teaching the guys for well forever. It feels forever now. I mean, Mohit had uh, he yeah, like when I started uh, like learning from these guys, I had a full head of hair. It's completely oh, wow. gone now. <laughs> As uh, so, it, like with Rohit, uh, I think uh, Ashwin and uh, Jangir are uh, other partner. Their journey is also very similar. That they've had to kind of learn themselves, do it themselves, and then teach a whole bunch of like uh, people over the last eight years. So, uh, I, what I have found personally is that where the ghee helps. Is like, let's say you're doing a lot of no-gi and uh, guys bust out of submissions or they bust out of things, um, you know, violently. But that kind of goes away the moment you put that gi on. Um, So it kind of forces you to be more technical, uh, you know. I think that's the only place where it really uh brings it to light that okay this is how you are actually supposed to do it this is how you're actually supposed to get out of shit or execute certain movements right um, i think that's where it helps but then after a higher level if you're competing only in nogi like you said just to counter uh, to that i think the nogi um requires you to be more technical i'd imagine exactly why you said that um in fact the intricacies which i'm finding with the leg lock game right now and um, the theories which I've, I've seen um, on finishing mechanics with, I mean, I've studied some of Eddie Cummings stuff. I've studied, um, I've studied, studied the Aussies, um, which is basically uh, Lachlan and uh, Craig Jones. I've studied Dan Hurst finishing mechanics. Um, 
and now I studied Ryan Hall. So um, I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm morphing these, I would imagine, into and figuring out what works best for me. Um, um, you, I'd imagine, um, at this point, because you're so into teaching, um, have started working on your own finishing mechanics in, in, in sort of a hybrid version. Um, so what schools of thought have really influenced your finishing mechanics for heel hooks mainly? Um, again, um, because I have like so many different theories in my head on so many different mm-hmm teachers uh what works for you best man uh all of those people i've learned from and i've found very interesting uh one other person who i'd throw in there who you should definitely look into specifically for finishing inside helix is jason rao he finishes them in a different way than uh, for instance i've seen like craig finish them um the two people who most influence how i apply inside heel hooks are John Danaher, as you'd expect, because he's obviously my coach, and Craig Jones. And also, I throw Gary Tonin in there as well. So, like, um, okay, I had a match where I went against this very, very flexible 10th Planet guy, and I won the match, but I wasn't able to finish him with heel hooks. I had him in a couple of heel hooks, and, like, for the life of me, I could not finish him. Like, he was hanging on by a thread i had him pretty close but it doesn't matter if you don't actually get it so i went back to the academy and i asked you know professor Danner, like what the fuck went wrong here like why, why didn't i break him and we went over a series of mechanics and worked on things and at the same time i was watching craig jones battle tested leg locks the the second one the, his second leg lock dvd and the mechanics he showed in that dvd are very, very similar to the mechanics that Danaher had just taught me, which is, I think, a good thing. You know, if they're two people who are both knowledgeable or showing similar things, there's, like, obviously then uh, a sense in which, right, there's some agreement about that these mechanics work, right? And then at the same time, I was studying one of Gary Tonin's matches um, at EBI, um, Danaher's taught, Danaher taught me three sets of mechanics on Craig's DVD. He shows two sets of mechanics, which are pretty similar to two of Danaher's sets of mechanics. And then one of Gary's matches, I forget the guy. I want to say it was Lucas Valenti. I think it was Lucas Valenti. It was Gary's last EBI and he broke the guy pretty bad with an inside heel hook. And that style of break was similar to the third set of mechanics that Danaher had taught me. So these three sources, right? Danaher, Craig's DVD, and then this one of Gary's matches were the biggest influences on me when it comes to finishing inside heel hooks. For outside heel hooks, I would say the two most influential people, or I'll say, I'll say the three most influential people were Danaher again, because he's He's teaching the move in class. But then also Gordon showed me a lot of stuff. I asked him one day, like, if he could help me with my outside heel hooks, and he showed me some stuff. And Gary as well. Um, I talked theory with Gary one day, concepts, and, um, yeah. Also with outside heel hooks, I'd say that – I would say that um, I have also been influenced by – there's a guy in the room that – you got no one's ever heard of him. He's not like a famous grappler. He doesn't have any social media. We call him Outside Ashi Joe. He, uh, he's just <laughs> he's just really good at Outside Ashi, and he's really helped me a lot too. Um, 
he is, uh, I don't I think he, he stopped training. I haven't seen him in a long time, but when he was training, he was like, he, he wasn't particularly amazing at anything other than he was extremely good at outside Ashi and working with him helped me as well. Yeah. So those are my biggest influences for my heel hooks. Uh, mentioned Jason Rao. Uh, again, this is the inside heel hook. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he, he's got good heel hooks generally speaking, but yeah, his inside heel hook, I think is. Uh, do you mind getting details of what he's doing different? So if you look at how Craig advocates to finish the inside heel hook, you can see this on his DVD. I'd seriously recommend go check it out on his DVD. And it's the same thing that, like I said, Danaher taught me. It involves, and it's usually how I prefer to finish. I like finishing this way better. There are advantages and disadvantages to both. Craig, uh, so we'll show you pin the, you pin the heel, you lift your hips up in the air, and then you bridge in. Anyone who's been to a seminar of mine where we cover heel hook breaking mechanics will recall me having mentioned those details, right? You pin the heel, you lift your hips, that, that creates a bend in the leg, and then you bridge in, and then you also do things like uh, bring your elbow back, um, trying to concave your shoulders. Yeah, yeah these, are, these are subsidiary details. I think those important details are pinning the heel, or it could be the knee. There's two different situations. You pin the heel or the knee. You, you, um, you lift your hips so as to create a bend in the knee, and then you bridge in, right? We want to create a bend in the knee. That's going to establish the conditions for the break. Um, if you're trying to break the leg before tightening everything, it's hard to break it. But rows are very different. I'm going to be honest. I really couldn't tell you with confidence how rows work because I'm not good at them. It, his, his are much more similar to an outside heel hook, actually. Like, um, if you watch how he does them in matches, he'll take, like, like, his top leg, and he's, like, bringing it down onto the thigh, which is similar to how – if you look at – yeah, if you – the, 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 the knee on the outside, it's coming to the inside. It's like pressing down on the thigh. If you look at how an outside heel hook is done. So let's say I have an outside Ashi on someone's left leg. That's going to involve my left leg compressing down on the thigh. Okay. The inside of my knee pressing down on the top of the thigh. Yeah. That's how you would do an outside heel hook. But when I do an inside heel hook, I try to flare my knee. Mm-hmm. Because I want to cover the hip so that they can't make a C-grip. If you watch, so a good match to watch, um, if you watch Nikki Ryan versus Uriah Faber, Nikki has Uriah in a very tight heel hook, but Uriah is like a human gorilla, so he like fucking shoves his way out. But like, so that's, yeah, so I'm always trying to flare my knee to avoid what happens in that situation where it's hard to stop. You got to get it like tight and fast if you want to catch a guy who's that much of a moose. Explosive, I yeah, think he's very Cummings had the same. Uh, he used to finish it the same way. He, he wouldn't splay his knees, but he would apply uh, pressure with his chop through. Uh, yeah, lateral to the medial side, and uh, he got a clean break. Um, it also causes a rotation in, in that kind of a finish, right? Like, yeah, there's definitely like so. One of my friends, Matt, he's one of my main training partners. He actually finishes the heel hook in that like Jason Rao style. Um, and uh, he, he's been getting me interested in it. Um, but, I mean, I know mine work because I've broken people with them. <laughs> so, like, like, I feel pretty confident with the ones. I, I think that the reason why I ultimately prefer these breaking mechanics are that I, I like 
controlling the hip as I apply my heel hook. Mm-hmm. Whereas the, bringing my leg down like worries me. Like I think you've got to get it very perfect. Otherwise, there's a shot the guy can extend his leg and free his knee from your knee line, which is obviously a disaster. So that's my concern. But, you know, like I said, my friend Matt is pretty good at them, and he's starting to convince me that they're worth exploring more. So, yeah, check back with me in three months. I don't know. <laughs> Might think those are better then. Um, as for um, influences, um I mean, I know you train with uh, well-known guys right now. Is there anybody we don't know about that trains as hard, if not harder, than the big names that come out of Henzo's? Well, there's a lot of people at Henzo's who are very good who have who, who've influenced uh, me. So, um, so okay, uh, there's a there's a guy you guys have definitely not heard of. His name is. Elon Hodge, he would be so happy if you heard me mentioning his name, I think. <laughs> yeah, he was really helpful to me at various points. Um, he's sort of like a, the devil's advocate of Henzo's to like shit on any technique you're doing. Like, oh, that's not good. That's not good. But and, and all the times I'm like, I don't think he's right. But he has also given very useful negative commentary when, when sometimes he's right. It's not good. Um, but actually, probably the person who's most influenced my game that not many people know about is Brandon Bennett. Brandon Bennett is one of Danaher's uh, black belts, and he teaches at a school called Progressive Martial Arts in Queens. And he has helped me with my heel hooks a lot. He's very, very knowledgeable. You look at, it's funny, you look at him, and he's this big, jacked up guy, and he's tall. So you think, like, oh, this guy's probably like a wrestler or something. He loves leg locks, that's like his main thing. Um, and like he, big he's, guys going for legs <laughs> yeah yeah um, so he's like yeah he's been very very helpful to me and he's he's um, he's like much more knowledgeable about um, leg locks than you'd think by looking at him we call him the, the master Roshi of Henzo's uh, because it's like <laughs> so like you know in Dragon Ball Z master Roshi is like a he's not the best instructor so to speak right he teaches but you're like what the fuck are you talking about so like, <laughs> uh, <laughs> Professor Bennett, sometimes you hear him say something you're like i don't know what he's saying but then when you get it it's like oh oh that's really good oh there's a lot of depth to that but sometimes the the teaching is a little confusing on route to getting the information but but once you get the information it's always solid so of these uh, various influences and training partners um <clears throat> Are there any stories or anecdotes that have really influenced your jiu-jitsu? And I take your attention to why would you ignore 50% of the human body? Sure, uh, yeah. Okay. So what about, what's, what's that for you? Um, so there was one day where I was rolling with a training partner and I got him in some heel hooks and then he got me in some heel hooks. And Danner was watching the roll and I was, I talked to him afterwards and he, he said to me that, you know, my offense looked good, but that my, my defense looked very bad. This is maybe, I want to say this was like two and a half, three years ago. It was around that. So were you a brown belt? Uh, I was belt? a purple belt okay. at this time. Yeah. Yeah. And um, he just commented that my defense looked fucking terrible. Like my leg lock defense looked very bad. And that was a major turning point for me where I, you know, 
I realized I needed to, Oh, and, and there was one other, one other situation with, um, where I had a, I had a role with a training partner and, um, I spent the whole round defending and I didn't get tapped, but I just realized how bad my defense was. Like, I just, I just felt like I was running the whole, whole round and that's never how I want to train. So these two, these two situations really pushed me to work on my defense very heavily. And I had the perspective before this, that offense was the most important thing. But then, so I remember another situation I was talking to uh, professor Danner and he was, he said to me, your goal should be to be unpinnable, unsubmittable, and unpassable. If you have all these things, you can go into a match with absolute confidence that no matter what situation you put in, you'll be able to continue pressing onwards and attacking. So look at like the confidence Gary and Gordon go into matches with because they know their defense is extremely solid. So let's say you put Gary into a deep heel hook. That guy I've had, Gary will let me put him in heel hooks. I'll, I'll get him with a heel hook and he'll do like the weirdest shit to get out. And it's like, <laughs> I had him at a heel hook once. This is, a, we were in 50 50 at a heel hook and he was doing something that's like, I don't even know it was like it planned out or anything, but he was like using his foot to like untie my hands. And we both looked at each other and he started laughing and, he, and he's like, yeah, like he's just fucking around, but he wound up working. He got his way out. And it's like that confidence, which is born out of specific positional training, right. Was something I realized that I, I really, really drastically needed. So I, I started working on it um, pretty shortly after that. So uh, for everybody else listening, um, what's it like training with uh, the Danaher Death Squad? I mean, without going into specifics, yeah, uh, yeah. How is it different from training with other people or other academies and other groups? Mm-hmm. Um, it's okay. Uh, three things. Um, the first is that it's extremely high-level training, as you'd expect, right? Like everyone is very good. Um, there's not going to be any off rounds when you're training with the squad. Like what I'll try to do is I'll try to grab like a blue belt every third round. Like <laughs> you need a break. Pretty good there too. I mean, give you round. Oh yeah. 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 No one's easy. No, no, for sure. I mean like the truth of it is, is like, even when you take an air quote, easy round, it's, it's coming to be- kill you. Yeah, you're still coming to kill you. I've rolled with teammates of mine that are blue belts who would tap many black belts. Like, we get visitors <laughs> who I will tap out and like multiple times, and then I'll find out that they're black belts, and then we have blue belts in the room that are, that are like way more difficult. So, like, <laughs> yeah, like so the, the level is very, very high, right? The second thing, so the second and the third are, they're going to sound actually like they contrast, but not really. I'll try to explain it. The second is that the training is very intense. So not only is everyone skilled, they're fucking trying very hard to, you know, win rounds. Right. Um, it's, we're not like in the room. One thing I love about Henzo's is we're not necessarily competitive in the sense that like people are there to get better. They're not there to win, so to speak. But oftentimes the pursuit of like, like the win in the round is actually how you get better. Right. So 
if all you're trying to do is win, that's a problem because you're not going to let yourself get put into bad situations. But at the same time, if you're not trying at all to win, then you're you're kind of probably just wasting training. time. Wasting time, yeah. yeah. Uh, um, and so the third thing, however, is that I think this may shock some people. I it's the safest I ever feel training when I train with my higher level uh, teammates. It's you feel very very safe because like it's a more controlled intensity. Um, like I have, um, so I've had very good rounds with people when traveling, but sometimes also I felt like, holy shit, I'm scared I'm going to get hurt. Um, like I rolled with one guy, uh, I don't want to say where, but it was a good round. He wasn't being a jerk or anything. He just was like, he just was very What's that? No, it wasn't Bangalore. It wasn't Bangalore, I swear. <laughs> it was another country. Uh, but like, he was, it, it, this guy wasn't being a jerk. He was seriously just rolling hard, and I liked rolling like that. And I didn't get hurt, but after the round, he was a big athletic guy. After the round, I felt, thought to myself, like, geez, like he had, uh, he had two Estimalocks on me. Like, he caught them, and I was able to defend and, and get my foot out. Yeah, but it was like, yeah, he went like the, which is how you got to do it, right? So I don't, yeah. and, 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 and if I really was put into a deep spot, I would have tapped. So it's not like, you know, even if I did get hurt, it wouldn't have been his fault. Mm-hmm. Um, however, you know, um, training with like Gary, you, you just feel very like, there's more control here. There's more control here. And I think that when you get to that higher level, that's something that you start to, feel in your roles that I feel like I can roll very intensely, but not hurt people. I, I don't think I've accidentally hurt anyone in training since I was like an early purple belt, you know? And that was a very specific situation where I had a heel hook on a brown belt and he, he didn't want, he didn't want to tap. That's if you're an upper belt, it's, you know, you, you can't let your ego get in the way of, of your, your safety. Um, but like, yeah, so like I heel hook white belts, you know, and I've never, <laughs> never injured one, you know, you're going to hell, man. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> maybe, maybe. Those poor guys, they don't know. Yeah. Um, so I, I here's a, here's a good story about heel hooking white belts. So, <laughs> my, <laughs> okay. So this is at the, one of the academies I used to teach at, and I'm, uh, I'm teaching class and uh, there was this guy and I'd never seen him before. Um, and we get to rolling and I'm rolling with him. I heel hook him like three times in the round, but you know, I'm not like fucking his day up. I'm letting him work around, you know, move around too. We're talking in like a six minute round. I, I heel hooked him three times. So that's not that many times. And so after the round, I was like, I was a like, good job. And he goes, he goes, well, this is the first roll of the night. He goes, he goes, well, it's crazy. He's like, no one's ever done that to me before. I'm like, how long have you been training? He goes, this is my first tr- first day. And I was like, oh, man, that was his first like, I just healed him three times in his first role ever. Um, but it's it's a memory he'll never forget. And I, I still talk to this I still talk to this kid, uh, even though I don't teach there anymore. Because they're not – I'm not teaching there anymore because of the coronavirus. But, um, you know – um, you know, he didn't die from the role. <laughs> I imagine um, there are a lot of people coming up the ranks and looking to get some time with Danaher who are just in the room to impress mm-hmm. them. I mean, I'd imagine if not guys who've been training there for a while, but visitors, 
Um, how you roll with these guys? Do these guys roll with the professionals, the guys who do this for a living? Um, hmm. How do you get around these training partners, man? Um, well, most people in the room will roll with a wide variety of people. So, like, we'll get, let's say, like, probably 30 to 60 people, depending on the class and depending on the day. And I think that you see, you see like professionals and you see hobbyists training more than you might see at other high level academies. There's not too much like, you know, um, there's not too big a difference in terms of who's training with who. There definitely is a preference for like the high lo- higher level guys are going to train with each other a little bit more. But like I said, like I'll, try to grab a blue belt every third round. Like, I'm not kidding. I'm being serious. And I also like to roll with visitors too. Like I like rolling with my teammates. I like rolling with visitors. I like rolling with higher belts and lower belts. Visitors are good because you get a different feel. That's one of the best things about Henzo's. We have a consistent supply of visitors. So you can train with people who you don't train with regularly. And you can then you, if you're training, so right now, for instance, during the lockdown, I'm like I said, I'm still training. I'm training with the same group of guys like every day. So uh, well, you know, uh, and we're all like, familiar with each other's. Yeah, and we're and we're all higher level guys, so it's like some of the things, like I, you know, you, you sort of predict it pretty easily with each other. So when you're rolling with visitors consistently, you, you know, different visitors, obviously, you're able to do stuff that they're not expecting, and it's, it's good to work that, you know, but. Mm. You know, it's also good to work. Like I said, I want to go with people who know my game because mm-hmm. that's going to force me to, to problem solve and, and things like that. Um, adapt to the solutions they're coming up to, my the problems I'm posing for them. Um, yeah, things of this nature. And um, yeah, but like, so for instance, like people ask me a lot, like if I came to Henzo, could I roll with Gary? If you ask him, and he's, he, he, he may be preparing for like a specific fight or something or, you know, a fight in one and working with specific partners. So you may not be able to, but it's not out of the realm of possibility. Like it's possible that you could. It's not like he doesn't roll with visitors. You know what I mean? Right. So, but so, I mean, I'm sure most of these guys are just in there and they're really trying to get the attention of uh, Professor Danner. So um, how would... Uh, I would one look to get his attention uh, if they were trying really hard. Would that Man. <laughs> just just look really good, right? If you <laughs> if you do really well, then yeah, they'll like notice, I guess. Um, you know, um, he the first day he ever spoke to me, it was a day that I did really well, and he pulled me aside and he basically told me that I had I had done well in training that day, mm-hmm. um, and like. Also consistency. Like if you're trying to train under Danner, he, he he wants to see consistency, right? Like in terms of like, if you, let's say you show up and you're like a killer, you're like a world beater on day one, but then you show up like once a month. I don't think he's going to be interested in coaching you. Cause it's, it's sort of like, why would I coach this guy? He might disappear forever. You know, um, as, as a coach, it just doesn't make any sense. So those are, those are the two elements, you know, you'd be looking for in a student talent and consistency so yeah i I have one uh it's a personal question so i have one of my students he's he recently got a bluebird um he has 
he is the most talented guy I have ever seen in my life to train, who's trained BJJ. But again, he is not as consistent as I would like him to be. Mm-hmm. And, but he wants to be, he wants to win the ADCC trials. He wants to be an ADCC champ. Um, I've tried various ways of getting through to this guy. I've tried being a sweetheart. I've tried being the tough guy. Um, I've tried and everything in the middle. Everything yeah. you could possibly think of. How would you deal with such a student? Um, because I'm really trying here and I just can't get through this guy, man. Um, so, how old is he? 23. 22. 23, 22, 23 yeah. Okay, around that range. I would do nothing, bring him to the trials. He's going to get his ass kicked and then he's going to be like, shit, I should have been listening. <laughs> like, I should have been training every day. Like, that's the only thing that's going to get, because like with, with athletes, the only thing that's going to get through to them is losses losses you know like the experience of that loss no matter what you say to him it's not gonna it's not gonna matter now if he was an mma fighter that's different because the loss could therefore include brain damage so you don't necessarily want you don't want to do that with an mma fighter but let's say he goes to the trials and he gets you know arm barred in like a minute or something as long as he taps he's fine and then life goes on he'll cry in the locker rooms and then you know like you'll be like well listen dumbass now this is why you should train more seriously and so and I mean, he could he quit yeah but if he quits then there's nothing i don't i don't think you can force motivation on someone but i think that that experience like i know for me losses have always pushed me to like you know when you lose if you really want this there's nothing more motivating to you like i've lost in the past and just been like like i remember at the last adcc trials that i did i lost and i cried you know, I, you know, I mean, like, because I, I just felt like shit and it's like, but that's what pushes you. That's what pushes you to want to get better. Uh, and so it pushes you to want to get out there and do better. Um, and so I don't, hopefully that would help, uh, your student. Okay. Uh, let me, let me try that. I think he, he has had his <laughs> losses as well, but he's, um, he's lost already. And he's still not, oh, that's not good. Oh, shit. I don't, <laughs> I don't know that. You said he was like super talented. I thought he was like smoking everybody or something. No, no, no. So, oh, yeah. so let's he, not get into details about. No, uh, so he would make it. He makes it on the podium, but um, he's always that close to winning. Short. Just short. Man, yeah. I don't. That's tough. I, I don't know then. Like, you got to like. Man, I don't know. Because I think like just telling someone something is hard to get through to them. If you say, listen, like. You could tell someone like till you're blue in the face. You got to work harder. If you do, you'll be a champion. But if someone doesn't want to listen to you, like I've had students, I've had similar situations with students, and I've I've dealt with the same problem like many times. I have a whole bunch of students who were like this. Like I was like, this guy's so good, and then they just like there's, you know, um, okay, one of my first students ever, uh, very similar situation where. He was winning local tournaments and doing really well. <clears throat> I was really happy with the development of his game. He was getting very sharp with leg locks, good triangles. He was he was tall. He had uh, length uh, in his limbs, which is good for applying certain submissions. And he was very smart. But then he downloaded Tinder, and he, <laughs> he just he just started focusing on that way more than training and i was like oh no and slowly but surely his interest in jiu-jitsu like he stopped training 
after like a couple, it was a series of months where he just, he got obsessed with just, you know, Tinder girls. And uh, we've had that too. We've had yeah. uh, one of our uh, friends, uh, training partners, he's a heavyweight. He was doing really well. He was smashing a bunch of people. But partying just took a precedence over oh, no. really wanting to be good. And he was the only big guy we had at the gym. Um, another thing, man, uh, you're big into, into drilling, right? I mean, you spend a lot of time drilling. Yeah, for sure. Um, yes, yes, yeah. How do you deal with the motherfuckers who just don't want to drill? I have guys coming in saying, no, I, I do mental drilling. I'm like, I mean, my focus, <laughs> get the fuck out of here. But um, again, talented dudes who... Um, Somehow they do well against low-level guys, so they think, okay, and we need to. Do it. Um, these guys really have the exposure to training, so um, you think drilling is a complete necessity, or you mm-hmm. think you can be really good without drilling? You can. Okay, you can be really good without drilling. But the thing is, you can be really good almost like there. It's possible to be good under so many various situations. Like that's like saying like. You know, could I be really good only doing um, positional rounds or yeah. only doing free rolling, right? Yeah, you could. But if you, I think you should always do a combination of, of drilling, free rolling, and positional rolling. I think those three things are, are probably the three most important types of training you can do. And I think drilling is extremely valuable. I know some people like, I think Keenan in the past has said drilling is not that effective. Well, maybe I think Kit Dale has said it's not that effective. Um, and that's fine. That's their opinion. I just don't agree like at all. Um, I, um, so Gianni Grippo, obviously not one of my teammates, but he's somebody who I have a lot of respect for. And he used to be at Henzo's. Um, and he's written about drilling in the past. Like he's written some articles and that influenced me a lot, how he drills. Like I learned from him. Um, you you can just look at these articles they're they're very very useful and um, I just think drilling is invaluable for before I try a move in live rolling I want to know I can do it on someone who's not resisting right that's why we drill and so um, I mean I'll I'll drill for a long period of time I I enjoy it I like drilling Um, but like for students that don't, so this whole like mental drilling thing before, I've, I've heard that. That's a great excuse, right? Mental drilling. What is this bullshit? Like, you gotta, like, it's not real. Like, um, if you're the coach, you just gotta tell them to shut the fuck up and do it. Like, <laughs> with my students, that's what I've done. Just like, like, uh, you know, I, I'm pretty close to my students and I have no qualms with just telling them to shut the fuck up and just do what I'm telling them to do. Just like, just drill the move. Like I'm, I'm the kind of coach that I will always explain why, while I'm sorry, why we're doing something. Right. Like I think it's important to always be able to provide explanations. Yeah. But at the same time, shut the fuck up. I'm the coach. <laughs> <laughs> Just do it. Right. Like you want to be able to explain it, but it's not a democracy still, right? Like yeah. a good coach, a good coach is not an elected official, right? A good coach is somebody who you know. More better than your student, or at least you should know better than your students what they need to get better, right? And as a student, you should trust in your coach, not blindly, because that can lead to some dangerous areas. Yeah, some problems, but you should trust in your coach that he knows how to develop your jujitsu, right? How to make uh, make you a better grappler. So whenever 
Danaher tells me something, even if I don't agree with it for like three months, I'll just like shut the fuck up and just listen. I will for, you know, and there have been times where I'm like, you know what? I still don't necessarily agree. I don't actually think this is maybe the best option or whatever, right? Maybe this position is actually a little better than he's giving it credit for. Right. Et cetera. Right. But I'll always take what he's saying. And for a fairly lengthy period of time, just take his word on it and, and test it. Right. Try it out because he has experience that I don't, he's been doing this a long fucking time. And similarly with your students and with my students, it's the same thing, you know? So, yeah. So when somebody tells you that, I don't know, drilling is such a big part of jujitsu. I don't understand how people couldn't use it, but if someone doesn't, someone doesn't find that it's a productive part of their training, fair enough. But you know, if they're in your classes, they got to do what you're saying. Yeah. It's funny you mentioned uh, Gianni, uh, Gianni Grippo, and I mean, I've trained at Marcelo's, and this guy trains, he builds before the class, he trains after the class, he trains, I've, I've seen this guy drill all day, uh, and same thing with yeah. the Meows and the gang at Unity, even Juni, um, these guys just drill all day, man, I mean, it's, it's ridiculous the kind of hours these guys are putting in. Um, yeah, that was me before this. Yeah. Now pretty much all of our training. So like I said, we're still training, but we're just rolling for about three hours a day. Um, And we're training in my buddy's apartment and we're just, you know, that's it. Oh, I I have people, uh, I mean, I know I have a few teachers um, who are of the mindset that even rolling is becoming redundant and useless. Um, So they just focus on situationals. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Do you think rolling is necessary going forward or do you think a new style of training is going to come in where all you're seeing is situationals? Um, I don't think that'll ever happen. I think that you need, I think the best way to train is a combination, like I said, of drilling, static drilling against unresisting training partners, free rolling where you just, you know, do whatever you want. And then situational rolling. Ultimately, I think the best style of training is free rolling because it's what simulates a match the most, right? In a match, you don't start in an arm bar or if it's EBI, of course you might, you got the OT rolls, but that's the only exception, right? Otherwise it's just you and a guy trying to exchange positions and submissions, right? You're attacking each other in a variety of ways and defending each other's attacks. Essentially. Yeah. So, yeah, so a free roll simulates that better than anything else. So I think a free roll is therefore probably the best form of training. However, the reason why we want to do situational training is because well, there's two main reasons. Let's say I'm a beginning student mm-hmm. and I have a hard time ever getting on someone's back. Right. Even getting to the back is hard. I will therefore get less um, training time in on the back. And we want to be very good at certain positions like that. So adding positional rounds into your overall training routine can help you consistently develop skill and positions that otherwise maybe you'd have less of a chance of getting to, right? right. Danaher has a certain philosophy on that, which I, I really, really like this. He one time spoke about um, this old wrestler, uh, old wrestling coach who taught all his students first how to finish takedowns. And then his students got very good at finishing takedowns. And then somebody asked, well, why are you teaching that before how to get to the takedowns? And the wrestling coach said, well, if my students know that they can finish the takedown, they will figure out a way how to get the takedown. 
right? So similarly, like if you have like the confidence, like one thing every single day we do at Henzo's is rounds from the turtle position. So you've got like a back exposure. And uh, so every single day you're training how to get to and finish from the back from the turtle. And we, we become very, very, very good at this because we do so many rounds. Every day we do mount. So you become very, very good at controlling and finishing, also escaping from the mount, right? You become very skilled at these positions. So um, imagine back mount and close guard, maybe. Yeah, yeah. He also added recently single leg takedowns, which I fucking hate. <laughs> but I get it. He's trying to work for like ADCC. He wants us to get better at takedowns. I just, I just, I, I, I actually was thinking about this that this is a major thing I need to focus on. I've been focusing on certain things. I think single leg, double leg, high crotch. These are all takedowns I need to start emphasizing. Gary, much, is, much more. Gary's new DVD covers most of that. Is, 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 oh, it's great. Yeah, yeah. I love it. Yeah. Best cover of any DVD ever, by the way. Amazing. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, but so, um, so yeah, I, like I said, I think that all these styles of training are ultimately uh, the ideal program consists in all of them. You know, so I've thought a lot about how I'm going to structure my program at Evolve. And I am going to, I'm, I might change this, but the way I think I'm going to do it is every class is going to be 30 minutes of technique, probably going to do two to three techniques a class. Okay. And then we're going to do six, five minute rounds, no breaks. So it ends as we don't, we don't do breaks in two rounds. We just keep going. So six, five minute rounds. And I think I'm going to do three positional. And I think we're going to slightly modify the rounds that Danaher uses Danaher uses uh, close guard. Yeah, so so what I think I'm going to do is the close guard round. So for those who have never been to Henzo's, the round, um, so the close guard positional round that we do, basically what it's meant to do, it's mainly for the top guy's sake. Right. The main goal is to pass the guard. You're not allowed to fall back for leg locks. And then the bottom guy can sweep or submit. The bottom guy can go for leg locks. But the top guy has to pass the guard. So it forces people to practice their guard passing. So that round is, I think, super useful. So I'm going to keep that round. I'm going to keep the turtle round because I like the back. I'm going to substitute the mount round for a probably a round where everybody starts from alternating leg entanglements. So 50-50, cross Ashi, outside Ashi. So everybody works their leg lock defense a lot. The reason why I'm going to substitute that for the mount round is because I like that one better. Uh, <laughs> I hate being in bottom mount. <laughs> um, and I just, I want everyone to be really good at leg lock defense. Um, and I think that you can practice escaping pins in, um, in the guard passing round. So I'm going to modify that one. So that in, at Henzo's, when you pass the guard, that's the end of the round. I, th- I think the way I'm going to modify it is that once you pass the guard, you keep going. Um, yeah, you keep, you just keep trying to pin and then move towards the submission. So I'm going to change it a little because I want to have those three free open rounds as well. I think that's very important. Um, yeah, so that's how I'm planning on structuring the classes right now. And I, I'm, I'm also writing up a curriculum right now, actually, but that's a totally separate topic. That, that's that's pretty cool, man. I mean, um, curriculum. Um, that I mean, 
that's exhausting though, right? I mean, <laughs> you got to yeah. <laughs> period you cover before you cycle it back to square one. Um, I'm, I'm trying to develop a curriculum that goes through all six of Danaher's major submission systems. So you've got leg locks, back control, triangle, arm locks, and uh, Kimura, and front head lock. Yeah. So these are the six main submission systems. And I think the best way to look at them is as three main systems with subsystems. So what do I mean by that? So if you imagine like a Venn diagram with three circles, you've got over here leg locks. Uh, really, they, they circle like they, they all intersect at various points. But you've got leg locks, you have front headlock and the back, and then you have back triangle Kimura arm lock. So that the, the so for instance the back and the front headlock are very deeply connected. The triangle Kimura arm lock and the back those are all very deeply connected. And then the leg locks are kind of off on their own. But the leg locks sequence with the arm locks and they sequence with the front headlock in the back. And there's a lot of connections. But like so for instance, like I don't think the the arm lock system can really be understood without understanding the Kimura and the triangle system. They they're so deeply interconnected and the back system. Right. So, like, the, this is how I'm going to teach it as these three larger systems with subsystems, which consist of the specific submission systems. That's, I got to word that differently. It's kind of confusing, but. <laughs> um, all right. Uh, just closing thoughts. Um, so, we had discussed bringing you on our fight card. I mean, we still have to figure out logistics for that. I am still mm-hmm. looking to find you an opponent um, close to your weight. If nothing else, I will cut weight to one, okay. 160 and I'll take that fight because we'd love to have you out here. And I'm just looking to um, – I'm looking to give these guys – I mean, we are looking to give these athletes that are spending time and money on training mm-hmm. some uh, another form of income through competition locally. Um, that being said uh, – this goes out to guys in, in Singapore and the rest of Asia as well. It would be amazing mm-hmm. to have you down for that, man. Yeah, anyone who's, who's interested, I'd, I'd love to. I want to compete as much as I can. You know, like I want to, you know, compete all over Asia. Um, I, was, I had several matches lined up for this. I was supposed to compete in Japan. I was supposed to compete in Malaysia. Um, I was supposed to compete in Thailand. I had these were all lined up already, but then obviously they, it got fucked up. But what are you going to do? Um, <laughs> yeah, no, I'd love to come compete for you guys. And like, um, it would be fun. And, and I want to come back to India as much as I can. I can't teach seminars in Asia anymore as part of my Evolve uh, contract, but I can still travel. I can still train. You know, I just can't, you know, teach seminars. So whatever. Like, but I still want to come and train in as many gyms, get to know people, become friends. My, one of my biggest goals is I want to help jujitsu develop in Asia, right? So I'm moving out there. I want to help produce a stronger community, you know, like you see in, so it's the same thing that happened in North America and it's what's happening now in Europe where People like what, what? How did jujitsu start in North America? Brazilians moved to North America and they brought jujitsu. What happened in Europe? Same thing. And now I, I want to be part of the people that are helping develop it in in a new part of the world. That that was actually something I thought about for a while. Uh, for a long time, I I thought about like 
it would be cool to go somewhere where it just is not as developed and, and help it grow. Like, so for instance, I, in, in Bangalore, I never, ever do this. I allowed the guys at the Institute of Jiu-Jitsu to record the entire seminar. That was the first time I ever did that because I trusted them to not post it. And I could see how motivated they were. I was like, okay, I want you guys to be able to remember everything I teach. Right. Um, I mean, yeah. And they don't and, have access to that much uh, content here, honestly. Exactly. Yeah. So I wanted to help in any way that I could. And also I trusted them. I got to know them over a couple of days. So I was like, you know, I don't think they're going to, I don't think they're going to share it online. Anyone who's, who's been to any of my seminars know I have a strict, like no recording policy, but with them, I let, I let one guy record it. And then, you know, Rohit now kept it and has access to it. Um, yeah. Cool, man. That's, that's awesome to hear. Um, and yeah, that's really cool, man. Um, yeah. Not many people take that big of a step to, um, uh, it's quite know, selfless this for a sport. I mean, um, just based on where you are right now and the quality of training you're getting, that's pretty, that's a selfless move. Uh, hats off to you. Oh, thanks. Thanks. I, yeah. Like I said, it, seriously, it's just like, look at the end of the day, the way I look at it in jujitsu is that we accumulate knowledge, but if all we're trying to do is accumulate knowledge for ourselves, there's like a limit to how interesting that is to me. Like if I'm just hoarding knowledge and I'm not teaching it, what do you, I don't know. It, it comes to a point where it's like, what are you even doing with all this? Right? Like imagine someone who works his entire career to accumulate knowledge and then his competitive career ends and he doesn't teach or share it. It's kind of like a waste in a sense. All that knowledge just vanishes. Yeah. And it's like, yeah. I, don't want that. I don't want that to be, I want to help jujitsu grow beyond, beyond myself. You know what I mean? At the end of the day, obviously like I want to win tournaments. So I'm not going, I'm not going to like, look, there's stuff that I'm working on right now that I'm not sharing yet. It'll be years before I share it. And that's fine. I'm not knocking that. That's of course very natural. But at some point I want to share it. <laughs> you know, I want to share everything that I'm coming up with at some point. Um, because otherwise it's like a, it's like a waste in my opinion. So if yeah. you're good at something, never do it for free. Right. That too. Yeah. Awesome. Robert, thank you so much for joining us. It was truly a pleasure and an honor. Yeah. Um, Michael, thank you. Thank you for coming on, man. This will be out soon. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, if you guys want me to have me on again, I, I'll definitely do that. All right, thanks, guys. Awesome. Thank you, brother. Yeah.